God's good, isn't he? Um, take your Bible with me and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians. This week and next week, I want to try to share with you how and why Grace Covenant came into existence. Okay? Now, my reason behind that is several things. One, a lot of you are here that was not here whenever we started. And you've kind of come in in the middle of things. And I can't tell you how many people that I talk to that come for the first time and they're kind of like a deer in the headlights. It's like, what in the world is this? And uh, even some of you that have been here a while still wonder, what is this? And I want to try to set some clarity to that, okay? Another reason is uh, I want this to be documented, so to speak, in order for people that come later can listen to it and get an understanding of kind of what we are. We have people come in sometimes and, you know, and they look around and they're here for a little while and they think, man, this is, this is chaos. And, uh, I'm sure compared to where they come from, it appears to be chaos, but it's not. It is a defined purpose. It is a clear purpose. It has been a consistent purpose and it has still our purpose today. And so I want to share that, make that clear. You know, people come in and, and now I like this. You know, they come in and they say, well, we can't figure out who the pastor is. And I feel like we've succeeded. Okay, if we've done that, that's good because it's not all about the pastor. It's about the body. And so uh, I want to share with you a little bit, and it's going to be kind of a, uh, in a in an informational setting, kind of from just information about what happened, and then some scripture that played a big part in us being what we are today. And one of those is in Colossians chapter 1. This is a verse that had just resonated in our heart for quite a while. In verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, he's talking about Christ and all that he's done for us. And he says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I think about that. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The last two words, all things are created for him. Okay? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. If you want one sentence that sums up what God is doing in the universe, it is that sentence. He is working in such a way that Christ will come to have first place in everything. That's God's heart. He is working that Christ might be exalted first, lifted up first, that he might be first place in everything that goes on. And in the context, especially in the church. Because you see, First Peter tells us judgment begins with the house of God. And I'm telling you, if Christ is not first place in the body of Christ, he will never be first place in the world. We look at the circumstances in the world today and we think, gosh, how terrible it's been. How awful it is. All of the things that have taken place in the last few years. And I just want to say, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They are lost. They are in the kingdom of darkness. The question is, is the church doing what she's supposed to be doing in allowing Christ to have first place in everything? See, our answer to that is, can't wait for Jesus to get here. Someone said that this week. I was having lunch with them. They said, well, man, you know, when's Jesus going to come? I said, let me ask you something. Would you give this bride to your son? Scripture says he's coming back for a pure, spotless, holy, blameless bride. Is she there yet? What does that mean? Christ having first place in everything. That's the bride he's coming back for. So we see something here that has resonated in the heart of us for a long time is that we want to see Christ have first place in everything. Grace covenant was birthed in the hearts of two men who had a desire, a longing, a burden to see the reality of the body of Christ manifested in the earth. That was their heart. It wasn't to be a mega church. It wasn't to win the world to Jesus. It wasn't to see miracles. It was in order to see an expression on the earth of the body of Christ revealed. These men had way more questions than they had answers as to how to see that come to fruition. As a matter of fact, they didn't have any answers. Didn't have a clue. There was no playbook to go by. We have searched the scripture up one side and down the other to try to figure out what the New Testament order of worship is. It ain't there. It isn't there. They didn't have any answers. They knew that it meant going against the traditional tide of how to start a church and even what a church was to look like. They did know that starting a church with the same perspective and approach 
that had been applied by the Western world for years would only bring about the same result that had been produced in the past. You take the same principles, you take the same objectives, you take the same studies, you take the same programs, you're going to get the same result. And we wanted to see the body of Christ revealed under the headship of Jesus. You see, the body of Christ has existed from eternity past within the kingdom of God. The body of Christ has existed for eternity. It's not something you start. It's not something you begin. It's not something you organize. More than that is more a matter, it's less a matter of starting something that didn't exist than tapping into the Spirit of God and allowing it to come forth from where it already exists in the heart of the Father and in the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of putting a couple of bunch of things together and saying that's the church because the church is the body of Christ. And in order for the body of Christ to exist, it must be submitted to the head, must be allowing Christ to have first place in everything that's done. And it's not a matter of starting something. It's a matter of aligning our heart in a place where the Spirit of God can bring forth what God has already established in the kingdom of God. A typical method of starting a church goes something like this. Start with somebody's vision, and then you have a one-year or two-year or five-year or ten-year plan laid out. Then using the accepted methods and some that aren't so accepted, you set out to form it into every other church that exists in that flavor, whether it's ecumenical, charismatic, evangelistic, seeker-friendly, vineyard, Bethel, fundamental, Pentecostal. The goal is typically to do it better, bigger, finer, more sophisticated, wealthier than all the rest so that we can be recognized. Sometimes the men here were accused of doing nothing when they ought to be doing something. Something ought to be done. The truth of the matter, they were listening and watching to find out what the Spirit was saying and doing and not just jumping to a foregone conclusion of how something was to happen. They were told, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. That's the accepted way to do it. Well, why is it accepted? Where did it come from? Their heart was to say, Father, we want what you want regardless of what it looks like. And it may look like something we've never seen because honestly, I've never seen a manifestation of the body of Christ on the earth. I've seen revival, seen moves of God, seen all kinds of things. But our heart was to see the body of Christ revealed in its simplicity and in its purity. These men weren't taking a different approach because they were angry or bitter or upset with what was typically done. One of them had been wounded by the system. But there wasn't any bitterness, and God was gradually healing those wounds. Rather, they just wanted to see the living body of Christ function or lived out under his practical head, 
I know I'm saying things to you right now that theologically you're going, yeah. Yeah, we, I know, I know you talk about that all the time. The problem is not in our theologically understand, theological understanding of it. The problem comes when it goes into practice. Do we know what it means to practice the headship of Christ? Do we know what it means to live under the lordship of Christ in a practical manner? Not just theologically believing it to be true. All of us believe that. But what about living it out? What about living out under a position where Christ daily is sought to have first place in everything that goes on? That was their heart. Even if it didn't look like what was typical Western church looked like. Even if it meant going against the conventional tide. Even if it meant being misunderstood. Even if it meant going against accepted practice of how church is to look. And that approach placed them in a precarious position. A position that required them to have to seek the Holy Spirit in every aspect of what was done. When you don't have a playbook, you're going to have to seek the Father to find out what he wants to do which is not a bad place to be. Jesus liked that place. He said, I don't have an initiative. I don't have a plan. I don't have it all laid out. I'm here to do two things. I'm here to say what the Father says and do what the Father does. That's a pretty good place to be. That's kind of what they thought. Didn't get it right all the time, but that was the heart. That was the desire. That became, still is, the mode of operation for everything that would be done and for everything that wouldn't be done. There were a lot of things that were expected of a church to do that weren't done because the Father never quickened them in the leadership or in the heart of the body to do them. Now, you would think, Everybody, every, you'd think every Christian that's ever met Jesus would say, yes, let's see it. But that's not always the case because sometimes fear and the unknown drives us back to what we knew before. Why weren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you saying this? Why aren't you handling this a certain way? Why don't you have this as part of your church? Now, it wasn't merely a fly-by-their-feeling fly kind of approach. There were several scripture passages that factored in heavily. John 5, let me just read some of these to you. John 5, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. If the Son can't do anything of himself... What makes us think we can do anything of ourselves? What makes us think we can come up with something that's a good idea and God goes, I wish I'd have thought of that. Jesus said the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. What did Jesus do? He did what the Father did. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. I don't come up with this stuff to do. 
It wasn't my idea to just heal Lazarus. It wasn't my idea to just heal the person around the pool. It wasn't my idea to just do that and then get God on board. I don't do anything on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. That's the key. Now, John 12, verse 49. He says, For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Another one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. All of these played a part in the understanding of how it was to be done. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, I want you to look at something here. Each one is to have. Now, let me ask you something. If I came in here this morning and I said, you know what? I don't know how many of us are here, but I have a $100 bill for each one of you. But when I came to you, I said, nah, you ain't got one. I just lied. Because when I described it, I have it for each one of you. Each one of you has something. Each one of you is to receive something. Each one of you has a part. And that's the praise that he's using here. Each one of us, none of us are exempt. What does that look like? For each of us brings something that the Lord gives us. All of that played a part in what was going on. Another one's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another in love. Let us consider how to get the pastor to stimulate us in love. I had a dream last night. It was a Benadryl dream. I hate Benadryl. Every, every time I take a whole one, I dream all night long the most bizarre stuff. So last night I took a half of one, so it was a shorter dream. <clears throat> and the dream was some church in Sulphur Springs had called me and asked me to come and see about being their pastor. And it was just a typical church. I don't ever know if it was a Baptist or Pentecost, never saw that. But it was just, you know, what we would consider normal church, and they were taking me through and showing me all their stuff and telling me all of their programs, and, and I remember they had an auditorium, and the auditorium was tiled with linoleum from the floor to the ceiling. I thought, that's weird. I mean, you talk about a messed up sound system, and I walked in and looked at all that, and in the back of my mind, I got to thinking. What in the world have you heard about me that thinks I would want to come here and mess up your church? Because in my heart is to see each one of us encouraging one another. 
Not just me, not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just the leaders, not just the Sunday school teachers, but he says, here it is. Let us consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. You know how to stimulate someone into good deeds? I encourage them. Not forsaking, now we've used this one, not forsaking our own assembling together. That's what we use when we beat you up for not coming to church. You know, don't forsake the assembling. That's not the context. Not forsaking on our own assembling, assembling together is the heart of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you are seeing the day drawing near. All of this played a part. What does a church look like? What does the body of Christ look like where there's an opportunity for each one to encourage the other? All that played a part. I've never seen that. I've never seen it where it was just a free-for-all, so to speak. That's what we think it is. Every time I'd ever seen anybody wanted to share, they had to go through the leadership and check it out. And it might be on the spot or it might, you might have to have it prepped a week at a time. But how to meet together with the understanding that each one of us is here to encourage the other, to impart courage, to get you through the week, to get you through their day, to bless your life, that you can go out and bless others. All of this played a part. There is no order of service spelled out in Scripture. But there seems to be a clear stated purpose for the meeting. Okay? There is no order of service. But there does seem to be a clear stated purpose for us getting together. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. He says, here's the purpose for getting together, to encourage one another. I'd never seen that. You see, never mind, we'll get back to that. But one of the key ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1, he says, now concerning spirituals, brother, now do you understand that the word Greek is not, the word gifts is not in there. It's not in the Greek. What he's literally saying is, now concerning spirituals, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. What is a spiritual? A spiritual is an expression of how the Holy Spirit moves and manifests through the body of Christ. Okay? You say, well, you're making a distinction without a difference. No, there is a distinction and there is a difference. Okay? One of them is we emphasize the gifts. What's your gift? Take a test for your gift. Look at each other and determine what their gift is. The focus is not on the gift. The focus is on the origin of the expression of grace, which is Christ, the Holy Spirit. Now concerning spirituals, these expressions of how the Holy Spirit moves and manifests through the body of Christ. 
as a whole and not just a few. They stuck gifts in there because they're received, not earned, as expressions of God's grace. That's why gifts is there. The emphasis is not on this thing apart from the Spirit. The emphasis is on this is what the Spirit wants to do in the life of the body of Christ through each one of us and manifest expression of the body of Christ. And then it's like Paul just goes off in left field. All right? In verse 2. And he says, you know that you were pagans and you were led astray to the mute idols however you were led. Now, what in the world has that got to do with spirituals? Paul had a unique way of before he shares what he wants to say, he contrasts it with something else. All right? He's talking about spirituals, but he says, let me give you a contrast. This is how you used to worship, and with spirituals being manifested is how you worship now. And he says, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now, here's the question. How do you worship a mute idol? Eh? This is much more relevant than we think. Okay? How do you worship a mute idol? Mute means lacking the power of speech. How do you worship an idol? How do you worship a God that does not have the ability to speak? Well, if you're going to worship a God that can't speak, then he, she, or it cannot directly communicate to us what it is it wants in the way of worship or what kind of sacrifice it desires. Okay? It can't talk. And so it can't tell me what kind of worship it wants. It can't tell me what kind of sacrifice it desires. It's mute. It doesn't have the ability to communicate to me. Therefore, it requires one unique elite person or small group of people to communicate to the common people what it wants. You got to have it. Because he's not going to speak to you directly. You have to have someone, a small group of someones, to communicate to us, what the common folk, what it is God wants from us. Now, just imagine with me a minute. Imagine the status bestowed on the person who is designated as the one to tell us what God wants. Boy, what a status symbol. What a position. What does he do? He tells us what God wants. He tells us what God wants us to do. God's mute. He can't talk to us. Imagine the status, the prestige that goes with holding that position of being the one to tell the rest of the body what God wants. Imagine the heavy burden that person must bear. If he genuinely believes he is the one who is supposed to determine what this God desires for all of us. I don't know about you, but if that weight was on me, I would not want it. I would not want to be the one who was responsible for telling you 
exclusively what God wants for your life. What a tremendous burden. Because here's what might happen. If I don't know, I've got prestige. I've got this position. I might make it up. Because I want to look good. Imagine the dependency that would come from the common people. Imagine the dependency that would come from the common people on this person that would develop if they believe he is the only one to tell us what God wants. Imagine the potential for pride that must well up inside the person who genuinely believes he is the designated one to tell us what God wants. It is a setup of magnitude for everybody involved. That concept that common people can't hear him, speak to him, or even approach him, since that is the job of the called one, and that person must be qualified either through talent, bloodline, education, ordination, or calling. Otherwise, they are just common people like the rest of us. Got to have a qualifier. I don't know that we understand how serious that perspective is because the most significant thing that it does is it anesthetizes our spirit. It puts our spirit to sleep. I don't have to hear God. They're going to hear God for me. I don't have to go to God. They're going to go to God for me. I don't have to find out what God wants. They're going to tell me what God wants. And my tent, my spirit then just becomes comatose because it's not exercised. The kind of worship consists of the common people for this kind of worship consists of the common folk coming to watch the talented or the elite perform. Applauding their performance, supporting their endeavor, and then leave talking about how great and wonderful the service or the speaker or the music or the ritual was executed. Since this God doesn't speak directly to the common folk, we don't know what it wants as worship. So we bring what makes us feel good. And for most common folk, sacrifice consists of merely showing up. I went to church. I went to the service. I went, saw the ceremony. I was there. That was my sacrifice. Took two hours out of my day. I'd have rather been doing something else. And then we leave with no personal interaction with this mute God. Just a false hope that we've been encouraged enough to get through the next week 
to come back and go through it again. If you read something, Psalms 115, because being mute isn't the only problem these idols have. Psalms 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. That's the one I want us to notice. They have feet. They got feet. They can't walk. They have to be in one local place. They have to be kept in a certain place. They have to remain in one place because they can't go anywhere else. And we have to come to this special place in order to worship him in this special building that's been created by human hands when God says, I don't live in buildings with human hands. All of this plays a part in our understanding of what church is like and what worship is like and what a meeting of the body of Christ. It's very easy to create a God in our own image. He says, they cannot make a sound with a throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusted him. It's so easy to create a God in our own image, a God that likes what we like, God that hates what we hate, a God that wants us to have everything we want. Who wouldn't? I do. We create a God like that. Instead of being conformed into the image of who God is, we conform God into the image of who we are. Give him what we want. By conforming him. Giving him what we like instead of what he desires. Worshiping in a way that makes me feel good or comfortable. Creating a God like us and calling it Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus, or the God of the Bible does not make it so. Creating a God that looks like us and attaching these names to him still makes him a God of our own creation. Well, what does this have to do with spiritual gifts? What does this have to do with meeting of the body of Christ? What does this have to do with the grace covenant? Here it is. It stands in stark contrast to what God has in mind for the body of Christ and the way it functions. It's not what God has placed in the heart of his children. We just haven't had the opportunity to see it realized. When the body of Christ is assembled, the reality, back to 1 Corinthians 12, the reality of verse 3 is essential. Therefore, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's essential to understand the reality of that, that Christ have first place in his body. It starts with the Lordship of Christ. It starts with the head of the church and a healthy, practical relationship with him. By each one of us. Without that, we have no living organism 
just an organization. All of this and more boils in the heart of the men who came together and said, we want to see the reality of the body of Christ manifested in the earth. What does that look like? Well, there's only one place we're going to be able to find out, and that's from the Spirit of God. He's going to have to have free reign to express himself and reveal himself and make it what he wants it to be. And that's what started here. And it started with relationship with him, relationship with the Father, relationship with one another, and relationship with the world. First two, God's really been dealing with. He is now moving into the third arena, relationship with the world, and how what he does here affects out there. The mentality for so long has been, let's bring them in. No, that'd be okay, but my heart is say, get out of here. Someone said one time, I don't think the Holy Holy Spirit's invitation is come. I think the Holy Spirit's invitation is, can I go with you? out where you are and bear this reality of Christ's presence and him being first place in our life. Well, what does the body of Christ on the earth look like? We'll talk about that next week. Do you have any questions? Okay. I know we've been all over the map with this, but all of these things bore together in the hearts of these men who wanted to see the reality of the body of Christ and wanted to see the Spirit of God free to express that on the earth. Any questions? Well, I got another hour to go. We 